You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, a quick word from our friends at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, specifically their Masters in New Arts Journalism. If you listen to the show and you've been thinking, you know what, I'd like to write some criticism, like uh, some of these people that have been on the program, this is a way to do it. You can go and spend two years in Chicago and you're going to learn more than just how to write like art reviews. You're going to learn how to use the Adobe Suite, HTML, CSS. You're going to be able to build stuff for the web and to write for the web. Uh, plus, you get to be in Chicago. What's, uh, what's better than being in Chicago? The application deadline for the Masters in New Arts Journalism is February 1st. So get ready and get applying. For more information, visit saic.edu slash longform. That's saic.edu slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And here is that show. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hello. Hey, you guys. Hey, Aaron. Your sweater indicates that you're uh, you're already into the holiday season. I think our listeners should know we're going to be doing a very, very special Christmas episode this year. Gift exchange? Uh, Secret Santa. It's a three-way Secret Santa where you give me and Max both gifts, <laughs> and we keep them. <laughs> On the show this week, Wesley Lowry, uh, who has a new book out called They Can't Kill Us All. It's about... The Ferguson protests, Black Lives Matter, and his years spent covering them. Um, he's quite young. He learned most of this stuff on the job, and we had a really interesting discussion about that. I just listened to this one, uh, and it was really interesting. I did not know he, maybe this is a spoiler, he, spoiler. Uh, he went there for, he's supposed to go for one night and stayed for three months. Wow. I didn't even know that, and I did the interview. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know, man, though? What's one thing you do know? I know all about email. And to know about email is to know MailChimp. MailChimp powers over 14 million businesses' email needs. Make yourself the 14 millionth and one. And now here's Aaron with Wesley Lowry. Hello. Welcome, Wesley Lowry. Of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're a young man. <laughs> <laughs> Youngish. Yeah. Uh, even with limited time, I think we can start and start. What, what, what got you into journalism in the first place? I like to say I'm good at exactly one thing, and I'm convinced at how good I am of that. But I have, 
I started when I worked for my middle school newspaper in eighth grade. So my high school newspaper for all four years. I was very proudly the editor for my junior and senior year of high school. I worked for my college newspaper every single day of college, um, much to the detriment of my transcripts. Um, but it has just always been something I found that I loved. I mean, my father is and was a journalist as well. And so... Um, what kind of journalism? Did so you he, when I was younger, he worked for newspapers and magazines. Um, then he did a, a little bit of television, and now he's back in uh, magazines working for some kind of healthcare uh, trade magazines based in Cleveland. Um, but he kind of had been all over the Detroit Free Press, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, um, the North Jersey Record was a lion's share of it, um, Diversity Inc. and Parents Magazine, Black Enterprise. Yep. And so I grew up in a house, though, I mean, because people are always like, oh, well, you did this to like, follow in your father's footsteps, right? And when I was a kid, when I was like middle and high school, I hated that suggestion. I was like, no, I hate that guy, you know, because I was like an <laughs> angsty teenager who like, you know, was like warring with my dad about whatever I had been grounded about that week, right? But I do think that what was interesting was in my house, and it's not, a lot of my friends, it's not necessarily the case of how they grew up, was, you know, we, the first person who woke up, it was their job to go bring the newspaper in, right? It was, we every day watched, you know, ate dinner, watched the news, then, then watched Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, right? And it was just like, that was the... Being a journalist was something that was seen as a potentially noble profession, and I think like we grew up in a time now where that's like, very much not the case. Yes. Uh, you know, the default is that the media is bad, and for me, we just lived in a house where, no, like this is like a part of the world we live in, and this is important, and these people do important work. And then, like I said, when I found that I enjoyed it, I was like, I gotta, I'm going to do this, and that's kind of been it ever since. And. You must have gotten pretty quickly to the Washington Post, just uh, based on my understanding of how old you are. So, what, like, what, how did, what was your first paid gig? So, I did a ton of internships and stuff in college. And then, after school, interned at the Boston Globe, and then went out and did a six-month fellowship at the LA Times, which was great. And then I got hired back at the Boston Globe full time in it would have been February or March of twenty thirteen. Um, right after the inauguration, or the second Obama inauguration, I moved to Boston. So you've got a book out now. Uh, the book chronicles the time you spent covering the Black Lives Matter movement, the series of protests across the country, mostly like 2014 to 2015-ish. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, in the book, you sort of describe when you flew to Ferguson the first time, what you were doing normally, which seemed like kind of like a grab bag of, uh, well, anyone could take the story, like you, you take it, kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly right. So I was um, after a year at the at the Boston Globe, I moved down to the Washington Post, and I was covering Congress and national politics for them. And yep. so I was on the Hill most days. I was like the number three or number four on the Hill for us. Uh, and then I would do kind of a bunch of other backstopping on national politics. So I might go do a story about the gay marriage ballot proposal in Ohio, or I might swing and do this random Senate race or congressional race. And so, but I always had an interest in issues of race and justice broadly, right? And so on the, and Congress gives you quite a canvas, right? You could go, a hundred reporters could cover Congress and they could cover it completely differently because every issue rolls through Congress at some point, right? So I might prioritize, or I did like on the time, like, all right, let me write about um, long-term insurance benefits, how they're not being renewed. Or let me write about the Voting Rights Act and the struggle to re... You know, so issues that I thought affected communities of color. And also, I would always look for excuses on whatever kind of the big boil-up story of the day or the week was. How might I help out the national desk? And so with Ferguson, I'd been following this really closely, and I had a few good friends who were reporters in St. Louis, so I was seeing their updates. And 
I guess this would be Michael Brown's killed on the 9th, August 9th, 2014. This is the 11th that Monday. And I come into work and I'm talking to the national desk. Hey, I'll ping the members of Congress from Missouri to see what the deal is there, what the, maybe the CBC is going to call for an investigation or something. And an editor overheard us having that conversation and says, actually, could you get on a plane and go? And so I ended up being the person um, who said, yeah, I mean, I had a bag packed. I just gotten back from Michigan. I had just covered a Senate primary like the Tuesday before. And I was like, all right, I got this bag. Let's go. I mean, it'll be a quick drop in. I'll get a dateline from St. Louis. I've never been there before. I assumed I would, you know, write a quick daily story, maybe something like writerly and smart for the weekend. And then I'd come home. I assumed yeah. I'd see all my buddies on Saturday night and then ended up there for, you know, give or take about three months. And so it was a much larger story than I initially had assumed it to be. At what point did that story tip for you? At what point did you realize that you were in something larger uh, than getting a, a date line from St. Louis? The first night. the the I landed and immediately went to, first it was the first press conference that Michael Brown's family had. Um, they just hired Ben Crump, the civil rights attorney who's worked with Trayvon Martin's family and other people. And so they had their first press conference, covered that, wrote it up, sent it in. And then the NAACP was hosting a forum somewhere. And again, this is the day after the Quick Trip gas station is burned down, right? And so we're now on day three of people being on edge. And I get to this community forum that NAACP is hosting. And I've covered dozens of these things previously, whether it be at the Globe or the LA Times or, you know, community meeting. And I show up and I see all these, I see maybe a hundred people in the parking lot just kind of standing around waiting. And I'm like, oh, I guess they haven't opened the doors yet or something. You know, that's a pretty good turnout for this thing. And what I realize is that this is the overflow crowd, that this huge church is full already and that these hundred or 150 people are standing in the parking lot waiting so they can be told by people coming out what was said inside of the meeting. And I said, this is really odd uh, that how passionate even days later people are about this, that you have 100, 200 people who said, even if I can't get into this meeting, I'm going to wait outside in the parking lot. And again, it's middle of August. And so it's you know 90 degrees, 100 degrees outside. I'm going to wait. And then someone's going to come outside and tell me what was said in the community meeting. You had that feeling immediately. And then at that meeting, I met uh, Janetta Elsie, who is one of the activists um, who I kind of profile in the book and who has become one of the more kind of prominent faces of Ferguson. And I have her drive, I drive, but I have her guide me back into Ferguson, the neighborhood where Michael Brown had been killed and where some of the looting had happened the night before. And as we get there, um, not long after we get there, the tear gassing starts that night. And so we get tear gassed together, we get hit with these rubber bullets, and I'm just watching what plays out almost like a war zone in front of me. You know, you've got these young people putting bandanas around their faces to protect themselves from tear gas. You have the police pointing rifles at them, we'll shoot you, get out of here. And I, I just, I had never been in a situation like that previously. And I knew from that moment that this was something bigger than just a police shooting that would be a briefing and then we'd all move on. That this right. was a thing and that this thing, we're now three days out, four days out, and it's still like this, that this isn't going away. This is only going to keep getting worse. As someone who's used to a kind of a herky-jerky reporting style, where yeah. you're here, you're there, you got a certain number of sort of slots in your word count and you're trying to basically, I mean, paint my numbers is a, uh, yeah. a disparaging way to describe it, but you're trying to hit a deadline with a, a set of information that is in some ways uh, has a, a pre-existing form to it. When you're thrust into a story like this that's expanding in its depth and the angles with which it's covered, it's no longer just a story about a police shooting. It's also a story about a protest movement. It's also a story about a mm -hmm. counter police movement against that yeah. protest movement. How did you think about 
expanding your reporting and on that? I think it's really easy. And this was a lesson because I actually don't know that we did this or I don't even know that I did this particularly well at the time, right? I think that Ferguson was kind of a interesting test tube of like all types of ways and things I would go back and do differently. But I, I think that one of the things that's really important is we get very, especially in these stories where everyone is there all of a sudden, right? And I've been on a few in my career, whether it be like the Boston Marathon or Aaron Hernandez, the Patriots tight end yep. or Ferguson, Baltimore, all of these kind of a story where the entire national media descends on a place. This is the only thing we care about for 48 hours. And then after that, and then maybe that weekend, a bunch of people will write like smart things. And then, and then we will no longer ever care again until the one year anniversary. Right. On those stories, it can be so easy to get caught in a journalistic pack mentality. Right. Everyone's going to this press conference. So of course I need to go to the press conference. Everyone is standing on the street corner waiting for all hell to break out. So I have to do this too. And that limits your vision in so many ways. Because first of all, you end up just spending a ton of time with other journalists. And so you start inheriting their own biases and their beliefs about the story and what they think. Um, two, when you're sitting at a press conference, you're not knocking a door. You're not chasing a lead. You're not doing this research. And so one of the biggest things I, I think is that it's important to try to break out to 10,000 feet to 100,000 feet, what does this mean and what does this tell us more broadly about the world, right? Now, very often, especially in policing issues or police shootings, we want to deeply interrogate the hyper-specifics of a given shooting. And there's room in journalistic space for that, right? It is important to figure, I mean, facts matter, right? The truth yeah. does matter. What happened, what did not happen. But if the Washington Post is going to fly to insert town where we don't have a correspondent to spend a week or three days, I, I believe my job is something a little bigger than like hyper litigating yeah. the specifics of this individual interaction. Because the other thing is, if a hundred people, a thousand people are in the streets, it is almost it's always about something way larger, much much bigger than this individual incident. And it's like, how can we start to capture that in a way that? provides humanity and understanding that helps the readers understand. You know, a lot, I get emails and calls all the time from people who are like, I just don't get it. Why are people in the streets? Why do they care so much? It's like, right. how do I, through my coverage, answer that question for them? How do I seize the humanity of the people who I'm covering and show someone whose experience or skin color might be very different than the activists or the protesters why this is a legitimate form of activism or, or participating in democracy? It seems like one of the challenges there is that you're reporting on the people who are caught up in this situation in real time and they don't really know what's happening to themselves either. Like it was yeah. intriguing to me when I watched the OJ documentary. I don't know if you yes. saw it. Oh yes. So they've got the jurors talking and the jurors are saying things that are frankly I found shocking that they were openly saying, yes, part of the calculus in the room was there was a scorecard and it needed to be balanced out. Mm -hmm. I strongly doubt you could have gotten a quote like that <laughs> the year after the jury. You know yeah. th that that's a that's a decade later kind of realization. And and in the situation that you're in in Ferguson, you're talking about less than a week for most of these people. So what is it like trying to get rational, coherent thoughts out of people in an irrational, incoherent situation. Of course. And it's so difficult, right? I think that, you know, my uh, friend, Nicole Hannah-Jones from the New York Times Magazine, she talks a lot about how too often we write about issues of race, right? Which, and obviously this policing and the protest, race is one of the, you know, catalyzing themes here, right? That too often we end up writing about what people feel about race or what people say about race, right? And, and that's actually a 
pretty remarkably poor way of, of capturing things accurately, right? You know, like there are very few people who you're going to walk up to. We're having this conversation now in the context of like Trump voters or or yeah. the world we live in where it was racism, a, you know, a, a major factor in this election, was it not? And I've yet to have a reporter colleague of mine go out to do a bunch of interviews and come back like, yeah, actually all these voters came up to me and said, yes, I'm a racist. That's why I did, I did right. this thing, right? And so it becomes very difficult Sometimes because of the way so much of our reporting, especially in those early days, is a very, like you said, kind of a paint by the numbers. This person said this thing, then this person said this thing. You have to begin weighing the questions of like, what are the accuracies or legitimacies of even of what these people are saying? And at what point is how someone feels and reacts to something no longer the story when we have the benefit of knowing our history and knowing our context, right? I think that that was another thing, especially in policing, right? I think that that was something that this one or two year period really began to change was the understanding of this challenging and interrogating of what do we really know about how policing works and how we're being policed, right? Those first stories and, and those first interviews, everyone was like, you know, it's a this is a one-off, police shootings almost never happen, police officers never pull their guns, and when they do, it's never unarmed black guys. What are right. you talking about, right? And we realized very quickly that we actually didn't even know if that was true or not because no one was really paying attention to how often police shootings are happening. And I think that that, um, you know, there have been some efforts uh, by citizen journalists and other people to, to track that. But it was shocking to us how much we didn't know and how much of that early coverage had this baked in conventional wisdom. Well, but the police chief says this never happens. Right. right? And so that must be true. And I think there's a, a lot to be said for being critical of, you know, like literally everything someone says, especially someone in a power, in a position of authority, the government, the police department, like, all right, but is this actually true? I know you're saying it, but like, does it, does this ring true in terms of history and in terms of the context we know? Because that's how we, I think that's one of the ways we kind of break into a larger understanding of what this is. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, Harry's. I actually just used Harry's this morning to shave after I returned from Morocco and I looked like a hobo. Now I don't look like a hobo. Thanks, Harry's. If you haven't heard of them before, Harry's was started by two best friends, Jeff and Andy, who wanted to give people a great shaving experience without being overcharged for razors and all the hassle and, you know, not really like enjoying the experience very much. This holiday, if you haven't done Harry's before... I really recommend getting their limited edition shaving set. It comes with a midnight blue chrome razor handle, three of their amazing five-blade cartridges, German-engineered, foaming shave cream that smells delicious, and all comes in a beautiful box. This is what Harry's is known for, incredible packaging that makes you excited to get some new razors. So for 30 bucks on harrys.com, you get the limited edition shaving set. They also offer handles and sets starting at 10 bucks if you haven't tried them yet. And the best part is, if you order before December 9th, you will get free shipping, free shipping until December 9th. And as a special bonus to our listeners, if you put in the code LONGFORM at checkout, you'll get 5 bucks off. harrys.com, code LONGFORM, start shaving in an enjoyable manner. Thank you, Harry's. Our next sponsor today is Casper. If you have shopped for a mattress recently, you've probably had a terrible experience. Not with Casper, however. They have an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price, which gets delivered to your home in a little box that doesn't seem like it could fit a mattress, but indeed, there is a mattress inside. Once you take this mattress out of the box, it does not mean you have to keep it. You can do a 100-night home trial with free delivery and free returns, so... 
If you don't like it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything, but I think you are going to like it. Why? It has a springy latex and supportive memory foam that creates an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink, just the right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Free shipping, free returns in U.S. and Canada, 100 nights risk-free. Best of all, 50 bucks off if you use our promo code LONGFORM when you go to casper.com slash LONGFORM. That's casper.com slash LONGFORM. Promo code LONGFORM. Thank you, Casper. Start getting a better night's sleep today. Now, here I am back with Wesley Lowry. I think you said in the book, 2016 looks like it will go down as worse than 2015, which was worse than 2014. So if we have a plague of people pulling a trigger in a a judgment situation, Mm -hmm. what can we say about like what contributes to that? Is racism worse in 2016 than it was in 2014? Mm -hmm. They're not quite direct paths between the two of them. Of course not. So I'm I'm interested in how you look at like once you're not on Article Two, you're on (laughs) Article 14 about this. Where did you find yourself as you got deeper and deeper into the story? What what interested you? Of course. I think we make a mistake very often when we create a this thing is racist or is not binary, right? Like you are a racist or you are not yes. binary, right? Like we, and we have this conversation constantly, right? And because of that, and when we create that binary, it's actually a means of abdicating any responsibility because when it's either you are a racist or you are not, our consensus broadly will be that like that's a terrible thing to be called a racist and so therefore you need to jump through these 19 hoops to prove that this person actually was and then you can call them this and no one almost ever meets that standard right right because again like i said earlier like people aren't like oh yeah hey i'm a racist that's me very few people will self-identify that way right so but i think that we have to look at how might something like race um what are all of the ways that it interacts with any given incident right because Mm -hmm. race is a given in essentially every aspect of American life, right? We premised this nation on some decisions we made about race and structures around race. We we decided that. And I don't know that's something we can outrun. And so because of that, you start thinking about, if you look at an individual police shooting, when we first start covering Ferguson, for example, the question is like, is Darren Wilson a racist? Did he shoot Michael Brown because he was black, right? And that is... A, a problematic structuring of even asking that question because what we have to think about is, all right, what are all the different ways that race factored into the shooting itself? So before you even get to the shooting, what do we know about Michael Brown and how race had factored into his life, right? Uh, you know, this is a man who we know has to, is dealing with school segregation in a district that had massive integration problems um, and schools losing their accreditation. Um, a man who so, so therefore had less of a likelihood of getting out of a place like Ferguson and, and, and getting to college or going through high school. Um, we're living in a town of Ferguson, Missouri, in a county of St. Louis County, where we now know there were massive issues with how the police were issuing traffic tickets and warrants, which uh, people who at the time, you know, there were more warrants out than there were residents in the city of Ferguson, which begins raising this question of, you know, why might a young black man walking the streets in Ferguson distrust the police? Why might they talk back to the officer? What might be going through this person's head as they have this interaction? Then we get to the actual interaction itself, um, and we start to have questions of what world and environment did Darren Wilson grow up in? that would be coloring the vision and the, and the lens through which he is seeing Michael Brown. Michael Brown, who he knows is a, a suspect in a robbery, but who we know is unarmed. 
Um, so what factors might come into Darren Wilson's assessment of whether or not he needs to use lethal force? Now, one, their physical interaction is one of those, or Michael Brown's you know, physical stature is certainly one of those. But what do we know about our own psychology um, and, and our own um, indoctrination via the media of how we see black men. We know that black men are overrepresented as violent. We know that uh, when we do these studies, we see both black people and white people are more likely to see black people as more violent, right? And so then when you, when you see the testimony that Darren Wilson gives, he talks about Michael Brown charging at him and he looks at the eyes of a demon and he, was, he uses all of this language that is remarkably dehumanizing. But that I think can speak to another area in which race may have been playing a factor here. That if that if a six foot tall white kid is running at him with nothing in his hands, does he believe he needs to pull the trigger there? And again, because I think that I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is that we assume that racism only manifests intentionally. That it, for something to be racist, you must intend to, you must say, I'm going to shoot this black kid and I would not shoot this white kid, right? But I think that overlooks the, the reality of implicit biases and the reality that we all carry prejudices with us, right? We all feel more comfortable around people who look like us, who are who we have experiences with and are more skeptical or put off by people who are different than us. It's just a human nature. And I think that when we talk about issues of race and racism, we have to start thinking about that there are things that are, are racist that, that are done by very well-intentioned, well-meaning people. Um, and I think that, that once we can remove that intentionality from our public definition or public understanding of how racism manifests, we can start having smarter conversations about that, that, look, it should not be so unheard of that someone comes out and says, yes, like we all have prejudices. But most people would, you know, immediately in the face of an accusation of prejudice or discrimination will say, well, but I'm not a racist. I have a black friend. I voted for Barack Obama. And that sets up a straw man that loses the where the conversation, I think, should go. As a reporter, all of the details like seem like good, good article fodder. You know, when you're talking about <laughs> yeah. like, did he turn around all the stuff? It's great. You can get in the record. You can use all of the stuff. But then when we start talking about the solutions and the sort of things that we could actually change, that becomes much harder to write about, much harder to talk about. And I think you kind of describe that. That was a harder point in the movement. What was it like covering that sort of second stage once the adrenaline wore off and, and there was a structure to the, to the movement and it was trying to organize itself and organize its ideas? Of course. And it was fascinating because what you had was, first of all, there was a lot of internal politics and there are a lot of internal politics, right? You have, um, when you have a broad kind of decentralized protest movement, you have people who are working in certain local markets. You have people who are more national figures. You have people who have been doing this work for 20 years. There are people yep. who came out into the streets in Baltimore for the first time and then gained a platform. So they become leaders, right? Mm -hmm. And that creates internal tensions. And the tensions exist not just on personality clashes, but you also get ideological clashes and tactical clashes, right? What is the role and what is the move forward for a protest movement or for a racial justice movement broadly, right? To what extent are you doing that work inside? What, what extent are you talking to the president or the governor or the mayor or the police chief? To what extent are you agitating from the outside of the system? Now, I think that, you know, I see Black Lives Matter or the movement for black lives broadly as a mosaic of those things, that everyone is creating space for everyone else, that that disruptive protest is what incentivizes a Hillary Clinton or a Bernie Sanders or a President Obama to meet with the other people so that, hey, can you, can you get your friends to stop screaming <laughs> yeah, at me? Right. Um, and that's important. And I think that, um, but, but I also think that, that there's been a, 
a fascinating process of trying to figure out because this was such a broad coalition people who had been activists previously and organizers previously, people who were brand new to this, people whose politics were at different points, people who are complete abolitionists, right? We need to get rid of prisons and jails. We should abolish the police versus people who are complete reformers. No, no, no. We, what we need to do is we need to implement this type of training. I mean, to, that, that at times can cause tension and also can be uh, paralytic in terms of how things move forward. Now, I, I think that as we approach the second year, as we get to Alton Sterling or you know, Baton Rouge and then Dallas. Like, there's a lot of people, I was getting a lot of email when I was writing about this, of people who were saying, but didn't we already have this conversation? Didn't we already talk about this, like, last year with, like, Tamir Rice and <laughs> right, Walter yeah, Scott? Yeah. And, like, why are we, what? I thought we fixed policing. I like, the story was already trending yeah, once. <laughs> you know, like, what? Wait, another hashtag? Like, what? It be, because what's so fascinating about policing in the United States of America is that it's completely decentralized. No one can tell the sheriff of your county what to do. No yeah. one can really tell the, the police chief of your city what to do. And so even in light of some of these initial um, both shootings and deaths, the Eric Gardner's or the Michael Brown's, you had these vows for body cameras or vow, we're going to have a conversation. We're going to rebuild this trust. And a year later, that clearly was not the case. And now two years later, that's clearly not the case. And so it, it does raise questions of how do you sustain because um, you have the physical fatigue of many of these people. You have yep. the backlash that comes. The Over time, you end up having more kind of infighting and discouragement. How do you sustain that over time, and what does that look like? Um, Was that a challenge for you within your own newsroom to say, uh, yeah, I know I spent all of last year doing this, <laughs> but I think it's important that I spend all of this year doing this too? Certainly. And I think that we what this would look like. You know, I remember there was an attitude in very early 2015, not among everyone, but among some folks who I work with, that this story is kind of basically over. I mean, mm -hmm. isn't this the end of it? And you know what? what maybe we'll do one big story this year. Right. And, that'll, and, and that that kind of sparks up. But I think that that, because it makes the mistake that it tries to, to siphon off these moments and, and make them individual things. When in reality, every year <laughs> since forever, yeah. <laughs> we've had these issues and these conversations, right? Um, they don't always feel coherent the way that the last few years have, but this is always there. We just, for a long time, we're not looking at it. But th th that is a challenge sometimes of like, how do you keep the entrance? How do you keep it there? And what I've advocated for is, like I said, I said that this is something that is real. This is a real daily experience of black and brown people in the United States of America. This, these are real concerns. And even when the sexy story becomes the election for the year or becomes whatever, whatever else it is, there's going to come a time this year when the only thing we care about for those 24 hours is the police shooting in Baton Rouge yesterday. And do we want to be prepared for that? Do we want to be in position for that? Do we want to be the best equipped to tell that story? Because if you want to do that, you have to be plugged in and telling that story every other day of the year. Be, when, so that way when Dallas happens, you can provide the best context, the best understanding. And so that's kind of always what I try to advocate for. And then that also, I mean, it raises a, a real question that I ask myself a lot of, at what point do I step out of it, right? right. Like I don't intend to spend the rest of my career only writing about this, right? Yep. You know, and, and so at what point, because there's no natural, you know, no one gets up one day and declares like, all right, the protest movement's over. Yeah. You know, no one, there, there are no clear bookends to any of these things. At what point do I step back and say, now this is someone else's story to cover for a little bit? And that's something I, I still kind of grapple with. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, like after you were in, you know, year two, year three of covering this stuff, at a certain point in there, you your team won a Pulitzer Prize for covering it. 
Was the line between reporter and activist ever blurred for you? And as someone who became more more and more identified, at least with covering Certainly. the movement, how did that change your role as a reporter? I, I think that there has been a lot of, I mean, from the very beginning, uh, you know, one thing that people do when they dislike a message is they attack messengers, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's a, an easy default. If, if we can pick through this, if we can discredit this person, then we don't have to listen to anything they're saying. And we see this constantly. We see this with politicians. We see this with activists. We see this we with, see with... We see with the New York Times right now, where the New York Times is uh, being blamed by both sides. Yes. There is, there is no one in the country saying the New York Times did a good job, basically. Of course, and, and they did a good job, and for the that, record, and, and right? For the record, they did a good job. <laughs> yes, yeah. and, and because we love to attack, because it, because if we can, again, if we can discredit the messenger, we don't have to engage the message at all. And so we saw this a ton at the beginning of this conversation. When it became clear we were going to have a national grapple with issues of race and justice, yep. it was, if we can just prove that all these reporters are lefty activist types, then it's all made up. It's a huge George Soros conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone's a paid protester. These aren't real journalists. They're yep. activists. Yep. There's nothing Is here. Wesley Lowry even black? Exactly, right? No, and, and we saw, I mean, we had colleagues at the New York Times where their addresses published. That's like we the had... number three hit on your name. It's <laughs> yeah. a story about whether you're black or not. My Google will forever be ruined. Um, and, and it's funny because it was actually one of the reasons that two-part investigation by a conservative outlet into whether or not yeah. I was black went so viral because of all the people disgusted with it. Like, right. ironically, like, can you believe this nonsense? Well, and so now forever, when you Google me, that will be, um, I think, above the Pulitzer. But, but going back to your question, I, you know, I think that there is a some fallacy in how we think about this sometimes. I think that we decided at some point that either you are a journalist or you are an activist. Right? And, I, and I identify as a journalist, to be clear. But I also think that one of the reasons I often don't engage in that conversation when someone throws that back at me, I kind of deflect it a little bit, is that I, I think there's some real fallacy in there. I think that every journalist should be an activist for transparency, for accountability, certainly amongst our government, um, for First Amendment rights. For it'd be, There are things that by our nature of what we do, we should be extremely activist in. But I also think that you know, sometimes there's an ignorance of the kind of the history of American journalism and what the role of journalists have been historically. Uh, when you think about someone like Ida B. Wells, um, who did all of this writing around lynchings and also around women's suffrage, th this idea that you know, when she's writing articles, decrying the lynchings and giving direct instructions to black people of what towns not to live in and where to move, was she an activist or was she a journalist? Well, she was clearly both of those things, right? Yep. Uh, that part of our role in democracy is accountability and is to advocate for people who otherwise might not have uh, the weaponry of platform that we have, right? When I take up a cause in the Washington Post and we say something like, we should be counting how many people the police are killing, well, look, that's we're advocating for additional <laughs> transparency and for more information. And, and if you want to write that off as, well, that's just activism, well, Fine, if, right. if, you know, because it is like I, yeah. I believe that we should know how many people the police kill every year. Sure. Right. And I think we have to be willing sometimes to say that. I think that there's a huge I just think we make a big mistake. And, you know, you look at the last 50 years of journalism, uh, last 60 years of journalism, and there was this big push um, to try to create this set of objective standards, a, a means of getting away from kind of the hyper-partisan yep. uh, newspapers that existed that our journalism had been founded on, that we were going to create these this hyper, this set of puzzle pieces. This is how you write a story. This is how you talk. These are all the rules. And this was somehow going to safeguard the integrity of our profession. Now, that one was never completely true to begin with. It was an ideal we were running after. But two, 
I actually think that was a means of baking in a lot of unobjective reporting into the structure of journalism, right? Because who is deciding what is objective and is not? Like, yep. The act of journalism requires a ton of subjective decisions. Do I go to this story or do I get to this one? Well, which one's more newsworthy? Yep. Well, more newsworthy to who, right? Yep. Is this, which of these two sources is credible? Yep. Which of these candidates deserves more coverage, right? All of these require subjective decisions and we bring ourselves and our own lived experiences into those decisions, right? And, and I think that that, so when we require that people whitewash who they are to do journalism, right? When we say that everything must fit a certain cookie cutter and that cookie cutter has been designed by what we know historically, right, is going to be a bunch of relatively rich white guys who ran newspapers forever, that we know we are fundamentally set up to do a disservice to one of the journalistic ideals, which is to give voice to voiceless people, people who are otherwise being unheard, right? And, and so I think that there's a lot to be said for there needs to be a willingness to tell the truth and to ask hard questions. And also, I think the other big thing, and this manifests itself a lot in coverage of police shootings, our set of like objective journalism standards, the things that the way we were all taught to write and behave allows us very little room to say what we don't know. Like we have to have this air of authority, right? That this is what, and if we find out something new tomorrow, we'll just rewrite it right. with a new authority, right? But because of that, we bake in a bunch of misinformation into how we cover things. Because the first day the police say this is this thing, so we write definitively that this is what happened. And then yep. tomorrow, presented with new information, we write definitively that this is what happened. And I think that that really undermines our own credibility very often when we're unwilling to say or un incapable of saying yep. both what we do know, like just plainly in plain English, like, hey, like this is who this person is, this is what we know about them, and what we don't know, and what remains to be seen or what the police have not said or what... I think that language is important. We need to sometimes be willing to be honest enough with the people who read us to say, look, I don't I don't know everything. I'm not some voice of God speaking to you via the newspaper. Well, I'm like a guy who asked some questions and they didn't answer any of them. If I were to find one fault with the media over the election, I think that this urge to do predictive models is maybe breaking your don't talk about things you don't know thing. If you really look at why, pe like what people have said made them distrust the media in this election. It's mostly they got it wrong. They were saying Clinton was going to win and Trump was going to win. That does not discredit all of the nuanced coverage of the Trump campaign. It just we got the part we didn't know wrong. That exactly. that might have been a mistake to go for what people wanted to know that was unknowable. And that strikes me as always a place where you could get into trouble. Of course. And I think that there's a desire very often to make declarations about things that are otherwise unknowable. And I yeah. think that's one of the major traps we fall in as, like, I mean, I don't like the media as yep. a collective, but that is one of the things that we, the collective, the media, fall into this trap constantly, right? Well, what's going to happen? We're seeing this right now with the after the election protests that have broken out everywhere, yes. right? So what's going to happen? And what are they going to do? And what's this going to mean? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what they're going to do next week. <laughs> it was funny. I, I was, somehow I thought probably that like with the book, they had put you on a new beat now or something but i like i looked on your washington post page and like the very top one is like portland protests like and like so you've covered like i don't even know how many protests you've covered i now. don't either Too dozens many. and dozens of yeah protests. well over 100 maybe what, 200 what what have you learned about covering a protest i mean that's actually a really good question because i because it's something that is going to happen in your city no yeah. matter who you are or yeah. where you are not right? necessarily about a police shooting no, 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 there's going to be, be a protest anything. about something there's going to be a protest right yeah and I, and I think that you know one thing that's really interesting my dad had said this to me once in the context of media diversity. Um, 
because that's something that's really important to me. And he was someone who worked a lot on issues of diversifying newsrooms when he was working. And he talked about how very often journalists by their very nature, many journalists by their very nature, are completely not activists. Like, we don't want to do anything. We don't want yep. to be. And so because of that, we carry with us a deep skepticism of activists, right? Like, and of protests. And I think the elite, right, are the powers that be, the political consultancy, the elected officials are also tend to be that way yep. because they made a very, many of them made a buttoned up decision to not be, they were the head of the student government, not the guy picketing the student government in college, right? right? That there's an innate tension there. And because of that, we can be very dismissive of protest and activism, right? We certainly were around the Iraq war, you know, it's like, oh, just like your parent way to like put on the like, uh, uh, hippie uh, Halloween costume of and course. go out for a day. And we do and we do this all the time. Right? So first, so when a protest happens, when a protest breaks out, the first thing it's like, well, what do these people want? What could they want? Right? Yeah. Wow. And they're not going to get it, so no. fuck them. And don't you understand that now I'm being inconvenienced and now yeah. I don't like you? And it's yeah. like, and I think that, that fundamentally, I think it's a very uneducated, I think that we just don't, collectively know very much about the politics of protest. We we only, many people only interact with them when they are physically inconvenienced by the protest, which is part of the point, right? You know, like yeah. I, now the, like the politics of protest are that one, this is a fundamental base level way of participating in democracy, right? This is as democratic as voting and probably more democratic than voting because for large swaths of the United States of America, long before they had the right to vote, they had the right to protest, to take to yeah. the streets and petition their government, right? So the point is, one, to send a physical message to your mayor, to your police chief, to your governor, to your president or your president-elect that we are physically here. Like, we are going to pressure you. You don't like this. This is disturbing to you. It's inconvenient. Your yep. pe People can't get to work. That's the actual point, right? But also, protest builds community in a way that's really remarkable, right? Yep. I, I think that the title of the book is They Can't Kill Us All. And it comes from a sign that was left at a demonstration or a vigil after a man, Antonio Martin, was killed in St. Louis. I mean, this was a shooting that the powers that be say is a quote-unquote good shooting, right? There's a, a young black man who had a gun who seemed to point at the officers. But someone left a sign at this vigil. This, is, this happens in, I want to say, December 2014 after the grand jury. It's, I think it's the first major shooting after the grand jury doesn't indict Darren Wilson. And there's this feeling... And they leave the sign, it says they can't kill us all. And this feeling in the streets and the power of this protest and this activism was to send the message in a town where it felt like these shootings were happening all the time and it felt like no one was being held accountable, that these young, largely black people came together and physically locked arms and were standing next to each other and were facing off the police and they were saying, look how many of us there are. Yeah. That you have to address this. You have to deal with this. And they found community in that. They found therapy in that. They also found network in that, right? You know, you have groups that pop up because they literally meet each other in the streets while they're, while they're yelling at the police, right? Yeah. That you have – that there's a – it's an incubator of this. And so what, now what we're seeing is a lot of center-left activism around the election and about what comes next to that. And so you're seeing in New York or Chicago or Portland the LGBT activists who's marching with the Muslim activists and the immigration activists, all these people who had their own spaces who are now coming together to protest or in opposition of something. That's how coalition building begins. And how do you cover that community later um, when there's not a body in the street that it's gathered around? Of course, it's hard, and you try to do it really deliberately because I think that one of the mistakes we make very often is we we provide too much credit to the people who return our phone calls. Um, no matter, no matter, <laughs> right? You know, like one of the big one of the big questions or conversations we're having now 
in the context of the post-election protests, who's organizing these things? Who's yep. that? And I'm like, well, I mean, I can call some people. And yep. But what we know about how most of these demonstrations work is that like 12, 15 people get together in a street corner and then a bunch of other people see them there and come out and join, right? Yep. And, and I think that sometimes there can be a mistake of over-attributing the individual that erases the, the broad collective. Now, I think that what's interesting is watching how street activism um, becomes absorbed into more structured organization. Right? Like St. Louis, you have groups like the Organization for Black Struggle, which had been there for decades, who become the vehicle through which a lot of the sustained activism in a place like St. Louis continues, or Baltimore might be the Baltimore Block, or these different groups who were always there and now have an influx of people who say, I need to do something, and they become the infrastructure that can receive them. I think that, to go back to the question previously, though, the part that I don't think I addressed was how in a real way you cover one of these things, right? And I wish I knew the things I know now about how to cover this when I was covering Ferguson or Baltimore. I think that there can be a, a helplessness sometimes for reporters or journalists, right? You're standing on the street in Cleveland and Charlotte and Milwaukee, and there's a hundred people and the police are there and some of them are chanting and some of them are marching and you are standing on the street corner waiting for something bad to happen. Yeah, Four yeah. hours. You're just literally babysitting this waiting for something bad to happen. Your, your phone is draining and nothing's happening. And No. And so you're taking pictures and you're tweeting some stuff. Maybe you're live tweeting. Well, yeah. And we've turned left on Branch Avenue again. Now we're back on Main Street. And I've made several decisions over the course of time as I've covered these over and over, as I've been often dispatched to the town where people are in the streets. One of the first decisions I, I now have made is I will no longer spend my night waiting for something bad to happen standing on the street. There's almost always a better usage of my time. And also, there's very small chance that when that absolute terrible thing happens, someone gets shot, the protest, that I'm going to be standing right there next to it anyway, and we'll actually see what happens. In yep. most cases, the, if something terrible happens at one of these demonstrations, we're all relying on the police to tell us what happened or the witnesses to tell us what happened. Yep. And, and so uh, there's very often a better usage of of your reporting time and resource and also your energy than yeah. marching in a circle as the journalist for four and a half hours through downtown Charlotte, right? Well, and you have an iPhone uh, video camera and every other person at the protest has one. Correct. The same one, Yeah, it's, it's not, if, if I'm not here, no one's going to know there was a demonstration yeah. tonight. Right? <laughs> like, no, they're going to know. Yeah. But, but the other thing is, I, I think that our coverage by its nature, because of how we, uh, is, is not formulated, both our print coverage and our online coverage and our television coverage, certainly, is not formulated to do a very good job of covering protests with any nuance, right? That our focus is going to always be about arrest numbers, about damage, about, and because of our kind of soundbite culture of media, that we like, and here's some guy who came out tonight, and here's going to be his one sentence that is right. going to speak for the yeah. 8,000 people, and who knows who that guy is? Yeah, also, he might not even leave the, live there. No, yeah. well, he might not live there. He might not be. Who is a protester? We have a very bad definition of what that means, right? Yeah. And so uh, very often we need specifics about who are you talking to? Who is this person? Why are they here, right? And what I did in Charlotte um, when there was some unrest there earlier this year is I would take a picture of someone and then I would interview them. And I would, in real time, break off because there's a huge appetite for like social media coverage of these things. We like pictures and scenes from protests, right? Yeah. And then I would break off and I would transcribe the full interview for the person. And then I would take a screenshot of that on my phone. And so when I would tweet it, I would send not just the picture and the name, but also like, here's like seven paragraphs from this person about who they are and why they're here and what they want to see happen. Uh, because I, I just think so often these are complex political decisions. The girl, the 18-year-old girl who flies home to Charlotte from Howard in DC to join this, this protest, can I do her story justice in 140 characters? 
no, I actually think I can do it much better justice if I run my recorder for three minutes and then literally just type it all out on my phone and let you see all of it. Let people speak for themselves. And I think that's a means of safeguarding against the skeptical media lens we sometimes superimpose on top of the motivations of people who are in the streets. Thank you, Wesley Lowry. The book is They Can't Kill Us All. Uh, it's out now. It is out now. And uh, you can catch uh, Wesley at uh, whatever protest is happening <laughs> next week at the Washington Post. Yes, I, it is not a good thing if I'm in your city, so hopefully I will not see any of you soon. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, thank you. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thank you very much, Wesley Lowry, for coming in on a very busy book tour. Uh, Thank you to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thank you to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thank you to our intern, Courtney Harrell. Our incredible sponsors, MailChimp, Harris, Casper, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. You all make this show possible. Thank you. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.